Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Good morning and welcome to the Morning Briefing for Friday, December 1st of 2017. I'm your host, Eric Dame. Jake Hughes is your producer. And coming up on today's show... We'll speak to the veterans of foreign wars and find out what they have to say about these forced TRICARE changes that have been discussed lately and that are apparently coming soon. A recent survey has raised some questions and concerns about this very issue, and Sarah Maples, the VFW's Director of National Security and Foreign Affairs, will join us live to talk about it. Later, decorated Vietnam veteran and congressman Steve Pierce will be on to talk about three pieces of military and veteran-focused legislation he's recently introduced. One of them deals with life insurance benefits, another with allowing wounded warriors to continue serving as drone pilots, and the last, well, it's sure to get some outside media attention because Congressman Pierce has enacted legislation aimed at ensuring Bo Bergdahl doesn't receive any back pay. All of that and more on the morning briefing for this Friday. And now we welcome Jake Hughes into the studio. And and what's that I hear? It's it's ever so faint, but it's it's getting louder. Oh, there's his theme song. He's coming into the studio. That's how you know Jake is here on a Friday. Friday, gonna get down on Friday. My headphones are off so I cannot hear this <laughs> musical blasphemy. Jake is here, and it's Friday. Going to get down on Friday. Going out with your friends? Who's going to sit in the front seat? Front seat, back seat, back seat. I turned it off. You don't okay. Have to worry about okay. It. No. God. <laughs> you almost made me swear on air. You almost made me commit an FCC violation. Yeah, Thank I got you very a dumb much. Button and it would have been worth it. So anyway, uh, it's Friday, and it's December. Jake, it's December. That's right. It's Christmas time. It's 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 a lot of things. Yeah, Christmas time is coming up. It's like our six month mark of being here and doing this show because we started. What was it like first week of June? I think it yep. was. So about six months ago. And uh, as you get older, time certainly starts flying a bit more. Of course, I just had a birthday on Wednesday, so I'm literally older than I was a few days ago. <laughs> but it's uh, technically we're all older than man, we were a few days ago. Yeah, I know. But you know, number wise, I'm actually ah. there. You know, you, uh, you've still got, when's your birthday? May 7th. So you, you had a birthday shortly before you started working yep. here. So yeah, next May, you know, it's, it's a little bit different. It's not a big one. I turned 38. So meh. 40, I guess that'll be a big deal. I don't know. Maybe I'll have a party for it or something because you're, you, you stop having birthday parties. Yeah. After, after 21, they kind of stop mattering. I, honestly, I think they, well, they, yeah, there, there's, that's the big one, 21. It wasn't for me, as I've talked about before, yeah. because of course, 21 is the big day because you're able to go out to the bar and have a drink. I was stationed overseas and the drinking age was different, both on base and off base. So, you know, it wasn't really a big deal for me. I turned 21. I was like, well, it's different than yesterday and uh, nothing. 
Nothing at all. That was an interesting thing we were talking about in the office uh, the other day because I brought up, you know, being stationed uh, in Guam on the Frank Cable and and some of the odd policies that seem to be unique to that island and those commands. And uh, one was that on base, the drinking age was like two, three years higher than it was out in town. And they tried to tell me when I got there, like, that's the way it is around the military. And I looked at him and said, hey, you may be able to trick these kids coming out of boot camp about that, but I've been stationed overseas three times before this. That's not how it is overseas. They go with whatever the local law is. Like, that's that was how it was done. If it was 18, then it was 18 on base. Part of the reason for that is you didn't want your junior people going out on a Friday. Like, today is a Friday. Should I play the song again? No, no, okay. you're okay. Um, it, it's It's a Friday. Kids are going out, and now you have the option of them going to the base club or going out in town. Now, if the drinking age is the same in both places, they're more likely to stay at the base club than they are to go out in town. It costs more money to go out in town. Drinks are more expensive. you got to get a vehicle to go out there, a cab, get a ride with somebody, hope that you have a designated driver, all sorts of issues. Whereas if you allow them to stay on base, have a couple drinks, they're within walking distance of the barracks. It, it it made sense. In Guam, it was like they were trying to get them in trouble. It was like, no, you're, if you want to have a, a beer, you're going to have to go out in town. And then you better not come on the base because if you're drunk and you come on the base and you're underage, we can get you for that. So what were they wanting them to do? Like crash in the parking lot? You know, five, yeah. it, it was ridiculous. It was, I would I would have done that. I, I would have gone on town, gotten drunk and like laid down and gone to sleep right in front of the gate guard. Oh, yeah. I suppose you could do that. Yeah. Although in Guam, there's lots of spiders and stuff. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I saw some big spiders over there. The first weekend I was in Guam, I didn't have anything to do. I got there on like a a Thursday, and on that Friday, I checked into the command briefly, and they were like, "All right, well, you don't have anything until Indoc on Monday, so you're good to go for the weekend. Do whatever you want." I had a hotel room. Um, I remember going to a park. There was a World War II park on the invasion, you know, with a monument to the invasion of Guam, all that stuff. And there was a, a path going up like to this cliff, an overlook. And I was like, oh, that'd be cool to get some pictures from. So I start walking up this path. There's, you know, jungle on both sides of it, but it's a nice wide path. And I see this big, beautiful butterfly fluttering in front of me. I don't know, maybe 10, 15 yards in front of me. And it's probably a foot or two off the ground, just Big butterfly, beautiful, floating by like a leaf on the wind. And then a spider the size of a softball jumped up from the ground, grabbed it, and ran off into the bushes with it. No, thank you. Turned around, ran back to my car, was like, never again. Never went to that park again because it terrified me so much. I never would have left post the entire time I was there. Oh, this thing, it, it leapt up from like, not not straight up underneath it, but like from the side. I don't know if it was on a tree or a plant or something. All I know is I saw it flying through the air and grabbing this beautiful butterfly and then skedaddling back into the jungle. And I said, yeah, never going up that path again. I never went to that park again. It was one of the War of the Pacific uh, Monuments National Parks that they have out there uh, in the Pacific Theater. And I'm a big World War II history fan. Love reading about it, finding out about things. And I just, I avoided that one like the plague. I was like, nope, not going back there. There's giant spiders that live there. That like there's also uh, supposedly, and I know it's true because the Air Force has actually bombed the island with poisoned mice to kill them. Brown tree snakes came over on, they think from Australia on like freighter ships, essentially, that just kind of snuck on, climb up the wires to the ship, get on the ship or up the mooring cables and mooring lines, I should say. And then when they got to Guam, they got off. 
Guam had never had any snakes before, so most of the birds built their nests uh, down on the ground, which made them really easy for the snakes to get. Plus, they're tree snakes, so the birds just, they didn't know what to do, and essentially the brown tree snake decimated the bird population on the island of Guam. It's kind of weird. You go to a tropical island, and you don't see or hear all that many birds when you're in Guam, and that's why. But they're kind of nocturnal, and you don't see them very often. I only saw, I think, two or three alive while I was there. One of them while we were on shore patrol. There was me, I think I was with me, a chief, and a second class. So you had a second class, first class, and a chief. And there were a couple of groups that would go around and go to all the bars and clubs. Uh, more strip clubs per capita than anywhere else in the world. Per hmm. square mile. It's insane. They're everywhere. So we would walk around and make sure sailors and airmen weren't getting into trouble. We're walking along and a brown tree snake literally drops out of a tree like, you know, when those trees that are in the sidewalk, there's a tree in the sidewalk. It drops out of the tree right in front of this chief. He lets out this screech that sounded like, I don't know, like a 13-year-old girl just saw Justin Bieber show up at her house and get out of the car. <laughs> and then he stomped on it and killed it. That's the, you know, I'm sure there are some snake lovers out there who'll be like, how horrifying. The island of Guam, they like they will pay you to kill snakes if you want to go kill snakes. That's the place to do it. But yeah, there's my uh, story time of Guam with Eric Dame this morning. Yeah, we got all a, the, the horrifying. Oh, the creatures the, the that creatures. live there. And uh, I know a lot of people are terrified of this stuff. I actually got scuba certified while I was in Guam because, well, after the first two weeks, you've seen the entire island. There ain't that much more to do. Strip club, bar, that's about it. The big thing to do in Guam, the good stuff to see in Guam, is just off the coast, under the water. It's one of the most amazing dive spots uh, in the world, really. And uh, I got got certified, went down there, would dive all the time. There's some terrifying creatures in the water down there, too. <laughs> when my, my mom came to visit for Christmas and New Year's one year, um, while she was there, I got her a Christmas gift of getting her scuba certified. So we go out, and I think on the last... Last or... <laughs> You'll have the excuse. Little and cough. He, yeah, 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 that just came cough. out of nowhere. On the last or second to last dive that we did, we're all out there and we're feeding fish Vienna sausages, thing, you know, little little yeah. tiny finger sausages. We're feeding the fish, and the fish are everywhere. And then all of a sudden, the fish are gone. When that happens, if you're a diver who knows anything, you start wondering, huh, what would make fish just leave an area immediately? <laughs> what do they know that we don't know? And then there was one fish that didn't leave. A little black and white fish that for years I didn't know what kind it was. I actually worked at a dive shop in Long Island and brought pictures of this fish because we took them that day because it was such a, you'll, you'll understand why as I finish the story, it was such a, such a little baller fish. And the dive master there who had dove all over the world could, didn't recognize the type of fish either. But this one fish, he, he wasn't worried. He swam right out and we're watching him swim along and we see him swimming towards what turns out to be a school of like, four or five barracuda circling above us. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. I mean, they're not as dangerous as say like a tiger shark or something like that, which I've also seen a, a one of in the water, but the, um, the barracuda are circling above us and you're just like, Ugh. for me and the dive master or the instructor, actually who was teaching my mom. Both of us were like, all right, cool. You can see him for a little bit and then we'll get out of the water. Cause no point in tempting fate. We don't know how hungry they are or anything. <laughs> And my mom, who had never dove before that week, was like, eh, well, I don't know about that. So we got out of the water. And yeah, so there there were the barracuda, but there's other stuff down there too. Moray eels popping out of the wall at you like a like a 
like a ride at Disney World. See, this is why I keep my suburban backside in in the city. Yeah. Well, I listen, I remember going to we were swimming to this cave that was like there was a cave and a water spout inside of this uh hollowed out like hill essentially off the coast of Guam. It was uh, near the Navy base actually. You had to either leave from a boat or from a beach on the Navy base to get to it. And while we were swimming there, there's this little ravine in between like a boulder that had fallen down from a, who knows, a volcano blew it out or whatever. So there's probably like five feet between it and the coral reef that had kind of built up around it. And we're swimming through there and I'm, I'm in the front and then I just happened to glance over to the side and there's a moray eel with a head, I don't know, probably eight, nine inches across. <laughs> I mean, their mouths are very narrow, but he was a big boy and he started coming out at me and I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but it was cool. It's a good my, story. My aunt and uncle have a farm up in Brenham, Texas, in the middle of nowhere, middle of the sticks. And uh, we are, they had two four wheelers. Me and my brother were out on the four wheelers and stuff. And we just, we had fun and we decided it's time to come in. And the entrance to the actual house has, there's a fence around it, there's a, a cattle guard, and then there's two trees that come up above it. Hmm. And as we're coming in, I'm following my brother. And as soon as he comes in, he just like slams on the brakes, turns around and screams something at me. And I don't know what he's screaming. He was screaming at me to stop because as he came in, he knows I'm terrified of spiders. There was a spider probably about the size of my hand hanging down from the tree. Oh. And I straight up abandoned ship. I did a combat roll yeah. off the four-wheeler. It crashed into a tree and I'm like aching all over, but I'm like, nope, 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 nope. You nope, leave nope, that nope, four-wheeler nope, nope. and you leave it to nature. Let exactly. nature reclaim it. Spiders are the one thing, the one thing that scare me. I remember when I started working at a news radio station in New York, uh, the great 1010 wins. And uh, while I was in training there, the first time I met this uh, this young producer who was just a guy who had like a, I don't even know how to explain his attitude. It was so strange. But I, I told, he was like, some some story came up with involving spiders. And I said, that's the one thing in this world that terrifies me. Now, he didn't know anything about my background. And he looked at me and was like, oh, yeah, that's the one thing in this world that terrifies you, huh? Spiders. And I said, yes. Not not like terrorists. It's like, what do you mean, like the Taliban or something? He was like, yeah. I was like, I've looked those guys in the eye. They don't terrify me. Yeah. Spiders, I've looked them in the eight eyes. They yeah. terrify me. <laughs> and he looked at me and he was like, oh. And then he realized, well, maybe this guy, maybe this guy's uh, a little different than the average uh, person coming to work here with his background. But yeah, spiders, it's the one thing. Nothing else really bothers me. Spiders are it. Spiders and now the fear of something happening to my child or wife. That's about it. So we've got uh, a great show coming up for you today. We've got Representative Steve Pierce. He represents the 2nd District of New Mexico in the House of Representatives, and he's going to talk to us about three different pieces of legislation that he's introduced recently. They focus on three different subjects. First, life insurance benefits. Um, and this one it was perhaps the least sexy of the three, I would say, but it's important and it's for, you know, disabled veterans. It's for, uh, it's really a great uh, thing that he's doing with this life insurance benefit legislation. The second one is pretty darn cool. Wounded warriors. Now we know that everyone wants to take care of our wounded warriors. Some people are doing a little bit more than others, but representative Pierce himself, a decorated Vietnam veteran. And when I say decorated, I mean, he has like the distinguished flying cross, two air medals, Flew hundreds of combat missions over Vietnam when he was a pilot in the Air Force. And uh, he had an idea. 
you know, a lot of our wounded warriors, and we've talked to so many on this show, we've talked to people like Rob Jones, for example, and they tell us, you know, they, they miss serving so much. Many of them had planned to make a career out of it, and then medically, you know, they're not able to do it because of those medical region, reasons. Like Rob Jones was a combat engineer. He couldn't be a combat engineer anymore because he didn't have his legs. It just, it's just, it's not something that was doable. Representative Pierce has come up with a way that he thinks our wounded warriors will be able to continue serving our nation as many of them would like to. It's an optional thing. We've already talked about it with him, so I can tell you I have some of the details on it. It's a very cool idea on how to keep our wounded warriors uh, in the military with a sense of accomplishment, a goal, and an important job that's actually short on people these days. You'll hear about that coming up in a little while. And then the third piece of legislation we're going to talk to him about this is the one that I'm going to bet will get the most media attention. He's introducing legislation aimed at deserters that names one by name in the legislation. Can you guess which one that is? No, it's not the guy from Minot Air Force Base that disappeared in 1977 and they found him in Florida like a month and a half ago. Not that guy. This one's aimed at Bo Bergdahl specifically, but deserters in general. And it's aimed at keeping them from getting back pay. Because if you remember, after the Bergdahl trial, his legal team said, well, we're going to look into the possibility of getting Bo back pay that we feel he was owed, which amounts to over $300,000. Not only is it back pay, it's back pay at the pay grades that he was advanced to uh, during his time in the possession of the, the Taliban. So it, it, it's something that's upset a lot of people in the veteran community. I have a lot of friends who are veterans. I mean, if, if I go to my Facebook page, a good half at least of my friends on there are veterans. I'm in a lot of different veterans groups online, and, you know, I'm a member of the VFW, and I, I talk to people about these issues so that I have a little bit of a finger on the pulse, I guess, of what people are thinking. And, of course, there are numerous opinions out there. I saw people who said, you know what? Bo Bergdahl, this is this is what it is. It's over. Let's just get it done with. Dishonorable discharge. That's enough. But when they started hearing about his team going for possible back pay, I didn't find too many people who were okay with that. I found a lot of people who were uh, shocked and aghast that something like that could happen. Apparently, Representative Steve Pierce was one of them. So he's got this legislation going up. We're going to talk to him about that later and coming up in just a few minutes. We are going to talk to the veterans of Forum Wars about some forced TRICARE changes that are coming up. Basically, they were mandated in fiscal year 2017. They're going to happen in 2018, I believe. So it's coming up here shortly. We're going to get all the details coming up in just a few minutes because, you know, I don't, I don't want to talk too much about it because I don't know everything about it. But the veterans of Forum Wars, oh, they know about it. That's their job to know things about it. And their director of national security and foreign affairs director is going to meet us here in just a moment in the studio. Uh, we will be talking about that and so much more here on The Morning Briefing. What's up, Jake? That was one of the weirdest things that's ever happened to me. What was that? Well, okay, we get the call that someone's downstairs. So I go down there, and I meet the woman, and I ask, oh, are you with the VFW? She goes, oh, no, uh, we won this tour on the uh, veteran for a Veterans Day event. I said, okay. Okay. Yeah, uh, well, yeah, I guess come on up. And then as we come upstairs, she said, well, let me show you the thing. And it's for 1067, the oh, fan. Oh, the fan, the sports radio but station. But the funny the thing is, Joe Davis from the VFW 
got a hold of the 106, the fan people. Yeah. And so as I'm walking in with these people, there Joe we- Davis walks out with the people <laughs> from the fan. And I'm like, I think we got our streams crossed here. Yeah. Well, we're going to talk to the VFW, as I was just saying, in just a couple of minutes. We're going to talk to their director of national security and foreign affairs about these forced TRICARE changes. Uh, it's really uh, something that's a concern for retirees specifically. Absolutely. You are one. You're a you're a retiree, so Tricare can affect you. Rob Jones, I know, emailed me the other day and said, "Hey, have you talked to anybody about Tricare? Because when you do, let me know. It's confusing stuff, and I want to know, you know, exactly what's the right thing to do." So we're going to find out a little bit more. There's some forced changes coming up to Tricare. There's a survey now that's come back on it, and there are some concerns that were raised by that survey, uh, and that's what we're going to talk to the VFW about now. There was an anonymous email sent to your United States Army. Uh Uh-oh. Specifically to the John F. Kennedy Special Warfare Center and School at Fort Bragg. In this anonymous email, which uh, apparently there's some things in it that some of the leadership down there says, okay, these are some concerns that we need to look into. It's essentially uh, alleged lowered training standards and moral cowardice among army leaders in charge of the school that trains the best of the best in the, the army berets. Yeah, yeah. That train them all down there. Uh, the author says in the letter that over two years, a drive to increase the number of special forces soldiers basically led to standards being either removed or significantly lowered and that the training cadre fear that it threatens the future of the green berets. So, I mean, you served in the Army for 13 years, Jake. What do you think about that? I mean, when I heard about the Navy raising the number of SEALs to the level that they did, I thought, well, where are they going to get the people to do that? Because if the people that were going there, let's say there's 100 guys who went for SEAL training, who had the drive to go there, were selected to go for SEAL training, got that contract with the way it works now ahead of time, and only you know 40 of them make it through out of that 100. Well, now if you're sending 300 guys, you're including... 200 that may not have even been in the class before and if 60 of those 100 didn't make it what are the chances any of those other 200 are going to make it i i do worry about the lowering of standards and when it comes to special forces that's that's a job field where lowering standards is not a good thing yeah that's where lower standards can. i mean i often argued when i was in when i was a drill sergeant that it's dangerous to lower standards because these aren't it's not a thing the army isn't a place where good enough is good enough if that makes any sense, it, where it means that if someone isn't properly trained and they don't have the mental fortitude to accomplish the mission, the mission will obviously the mission will get accomplished. But in the Green Berets, we're talking about people whose job it is to train other armies to stand and fight. So if they're not up to the standards, the rigorous standards that have been set to that school for 60 years now, I almost, it, it bothers me because what if these people what are they training these other armies to do if they're not trained enough themselves? One of the things uh, that the letter alleges is that the leadership at the school, including uh, the major general who runs it, Kurt Sontag, uh, and other members of the command there, basically put their careers ahead of the mission of producing the, the correct quality of Green Beret, that they've decided that getting the numbers where they need to be is more important than having the quality along with those numbers. Uh, because, you know, if they're given a directive that, Hey, we need 200 green berets, but they only have 130 
that are capable of passing at the standard that should have been, and then they push another 70 through to get to that number, that's not a good thing. So, um, I mean, the letter is, uh, the email is quoted as saying the school has devolved into a cesspool of toxic, exploitive, biased, and self-serving senior officers who are bolstered by submissive, sycophantic, and just as culpable enlisted leaders. Wow. Yeah. They have doggedly succeeded in two things, furthering their careers and ensuring that special forces are more prolific but dangerously less capable than ever before. So saying, hey, you may have more of them, but more isn't always better, essentially. Now, the general has written a response uh, refuting many of the points uh, from his perspective, uh, defending the graduates that they have put out there, saying, hey, we're putting out good Green Berets, although it does say that some issues raised in the email warrant further evaluation. So we're going to see. You know, I might reach out. To, we've, we, we've met some Green Berets here on the show. Tim Kennedy is yeah. one. Might want to reach out to them and see, like, hey, do you have any comment on this? Uh, I don't know how many of them would be willing to comment. Maybe Tim Kennedy. That's about the only yeah, one I think. Yeah, he seems to not give a hoot. He, he doesn't care. As he said during the interview, he's like, yeah, I'm going to get chewed out once in a while, but, you know, what's the worst thing they can do to me? What I'll get chewed do? out, been chewed out before. Yep. What are they going to do? Knock me from E7 to E6? Yeah. He's got a TV career. He doesn't care. <laughs> As we often said, what are they going to do? Send me back to Iraq? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's really, really what it comes down to. Speaking of not coming down to, but coming up, the VFW will be here with us in just a moment. We're going to speak to them about these forced TRICARE changes that have been such an issue that I've had actually veterans reaching out to me to ask, hey, what's going on with this? Well, if you're one of the people wondering what's going on with this, you're going to know in just a couple of minutes. And then, coming up later, Representative Steve Pierce. Second District of New Mexico, United States Congressman, Air Force veteran, decorated Vietnam veteran. He's going to join us to talk about three pieces of legislation he's introduced. Morning briefing, back after this. Helping military veterans stay connected. We make it easy. We're CBS Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting vets every day. Online and all over social media. Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. At ConnectingVets. Welcome back to the Morning Briefing, Friday, December 1st, 2017 edition. I know, it's December already. Good, good gracious. Hard to believe, but not hard to believe that ConnectingVets.com has the latest and greatest veteran news and information of note. You need to be checking us out every day, or at least following us on social media. We are at Connecting Vets on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. And if you go there, you will find the latest and greatest stories. And I can tell you, I just got some new information. I wrote a story yesterday on the VA ID card and how one of the things is nobody knows what it looks like. Nobody knows what this thing is. Well, guess what? Now, apparently, we know what it looks like. Our VA reporter, Jonathan Copanger, swung into the studio to tell me, hey, hey, I've got it. I've got it. I know what it looks like. So we're going to have some uh, some breaking uh, stuff on that coming up on our website here shortly. And of course, we want to thank the VFW so much for coming in to speak to us about this important issue related to TRICARE, how it's going to affect the veteran community as well as the active duty community and those left behind by our fallen soldiers, sailors, Marines and airmen. That's one group that I didn't even think about when I thought about TRICARE. The Gold Star families who are recipients of TRICARE, 
you know, they're going to be affected by these changes too. And some of them are, are significant changes where we're talking about more money. Every time you go for a visit to the doctor, that's difficult, man. And it's difficult when people don't know about it and they're kind of surprised because listen, we all know what it's like to operate on that shoestring budget, right? where you are counting every penny, every nickel, every dime. And if that doesn't happen, if you're not able to plan because you don't have the correct information, that's just, uh, that's a problem. I guess that's the best way I can put it. That is a significant problem and something that we want to do whatever we can to help people know. So we're going to have a story going up on ConnectingVets.com later today on TRICARE, those changes, and we're going to have the audio from our interview with Sarah Maples uh, embedded in there in the story. So you'll be able to share it out with people and let them know about everything that's going on with that. You know, we have the opportunity to talk to a number of, of amazing veterans who've gone on to do amazing things, some of them going into public service like politics. And we are going to be joined by one of them right now. I actually had the opportunity to sit down and speak with him over the phone yesterday, and here is what he had to say. And joining me now is Congressman Steve Pierce, proudly representing the 2nd District of New Mexico in the United States House of Representatives. Congressman Pierce, how are you this morning? I'm doing well, thanks. Uh, Always nice talking to you. Well, it's a pleasure talking to you, too. Of course, uh, before becoming a congressman, a little way back in your life, you actually served in our United States Air Force and wanted to ask you first just a little bit about uh, your service, when you served, what you did, and uh, what life was like when you got out. Okay, I uh, served in 1970 to 76 when I was a junior at New Mexico State University. I uh, found out that I had won the lottery. Uh, so they said that I was going to win free flying lessons and a trip to Vietnam out of the deal. <laughs> I uh, went ahead and got into ROTC where I could finish college, finished college, went through pilot training, ended up in Vietnam in mid-71, stayed there off and on for three years, 71, 2, and 3, uh, just flying the, the combat missions uh, in South Vietnam, some right up on the DMZ. Uh, so when I got out, I put my uniform in the closet, never spoke about being in the military for 20 years. It was hmm. it was a time where the military was disrespected. It was unappreciated, and uh, you faced hostilities from time to time if you even acknowledged that you knew about the military. It, when I came to Congress, that was the first speech I gave on the House floor, that, that we should never make the mistake again of blaming the kids in uniform. They're doing their job. I I didn't know the politics of the war, didn't much care about it. I knew that my country had asked me to go and serve, and I did. And that's all I knew. I was doing my job every day and to get home, and uh, soldiers treated just very roughly in some cases, most cases with some disdain, uh, with just outright ignoring in other cases. And so so, uh, uh, we're still protecting and, and... kind of standing up for the honor of the people who will serve the young men and women who who sign up to to protect the country when a lot of the country is just going to the mall on weekends i just think that they deserve better than what we can ever give them we're speaking with congressman steve pierce of new mexico and congressman after leaving the military eventually you'd get into politics locally and then on the national level of course being elected in 2011 to the house of representatives what made you decide to get into public service, particularly so many years after your military service? I could uh, see that the American way of life was disappearing underneath us. That love of country, 
the opportunities. I came from a desperately poor family. Uh, grew up, dad was a sharecropper when I was born, just very bottom end of the economic ladder. I, my first job was at nine outside the home. And we did that so we'd have jeans to go to school in in the fall. And so watching what I've been able to do in my life to, to graduate from college, learn to fly, uh, go into business, fly for the country in combat, uh, those are opportunities that, that are just exceptional throughout the world, and I could see those dissipating. So we decided to run first for state legislature and then for Congress. First elected in 2002, uh, Ran for U.S. Senate in 2008, lost that race, turned around and ran for Congress again, elected the second time, 2010, started that second tour of service, 2011. Right. So really uh, a, a varied career that you've had uh, in trying for the Senate as well, but being elected to Congress two times. And during your time in Congress, of course, one of the things that you've been known for is taking a look at veterans issues. And there's a, a few things that we want to talk to you about that you've got going on right now. The first one with uh, everyone's favorite soldier. Of course, I say that facetiously. Mr. Bo Bergdahl recently given a dishonorable discharge from the army uh, after deserting his post in Afghanistan. And after that uh, guilty plea and the dishonorable discharge news came through, we heard that his legal team was looking at the possibility of trying to uh, get back pay for him for those years that he was held in Afghanistan. Uh, apparently, that didn't sit too well with you because, as I understand it, you're introducing legislation to prevent that very thing from happening. Can you tell us a little bit about this legislation? Sure. What uh, I was offended, I think, is every combat veteran would be offended that somebody walks off their post. They we, we lose lives going to look for them. The Army never really says he deserts. They begin to kind of cover the whole thing up, it looks like to me. Uh, when he gets back, he admits that, yes, he did desert. Uh, to get him back, we traded five high-value Taliban prisoners, uh, let them go out of Guantanamo, no telling where they are now. All of that is pretty offensive, but then when the judge says, well, uh, we're not going to give you any jail time, it just made me cringe. Then the final insult came when uh, when it said that uh, the Army was thinking about giving him back his $300,000 back pay for when he was a deserter. I'm sorry, but that went too far. I put a bill in saying we're going to take that $300,000. We're going to divide it among the widows of the, of the people who are lost on missions to rescue him. If the Army can't identify them or can't acknowledge that, that those deaths actually happened, then we'll divide it among future people who, who are suffering uh, loss or, or injury from, from missions to rescue uh, people from, uh, from the enemy. So it's just overall was an offensive thing, I think, to all of us who have served and, and all of us who will serve. You know, I think there are a lot of veterans who certainly agree with you on that point. Now, this bill that you're introducing, would it just apply to him or is this for, for everyone? Because it brings to mind a recent news story that we had of an airman who disappeared from Minot Air Force Base in the 70s. They found him, you know, 40 years later living down in Florida under an assumed identity. I mean, if if Bergdahl is eligible for back pay, then this guy who deserted, it would sound like he would be eligible for nearly four decades of back pay. Is this something specifically targeted at Bergdahl or at deserters in general? It mentions Bergdahl by name, but also it's des it's designed to stop the entire thing of giving back pay in any, any instance where you have a deserter or somebody who deserves a dishonorable discharge. We just 
this nation has got its values upside down, including in the military. I think it's up to us who have, uh, have a clear perception of what's going on, especially from the viewpoint of the guys and the young men and women in the field. Then let's, uh, let's begin to clean up these laws that allow such travesties to occur. And that's not the only piece of veteran-related and military-related legislation coming out of the office of Congressman Steve Pierce, who we're speaking to now. He represents the 2nd District of New Mexico in the House of Representatives. The next one that I want to talk about is the Protecting Wounded Warriors' Right to Serve Act, which, as I read it, means that our wounded warriors would be able to continue their service by doing a job that uh, you know they would still be able to do despite injuries that they have received, particularly piloting aircraft remotely. Tell us a little bit about that legislation, sir. I watched in my entire generation, we brought our wounded warriors home, uh, people who had suffered uh, amputation, whatever, and and we put them out on the streets. We gave them disability pay, but people don't want something free, especially people who've been wounded in combat. They, they've earned the right to continue to serve. There are seven people behind the front lines in every every single combat. Uh, so you got the guys on the front, seven people behind the lines that serve. Any of these could be our disabled veterans that have, have been uh, disabled on active duty in combat. So we wanted to give a clear path. Now we make it real specific for the RPAs, the remote piloted aircraft, because we're going through a shortage. The training goes on in our district. And so we watch the shortage of pilots and I'm saying, wait, these young men and women in wheelchairs with prosthetics, they can easily sit at the desk and run the computer that, that controls these RPAs. Uh, we control from New Mexico missions that are going on over Afghanistan and Iraq uh, daily. Let's use our wounded warriors and let them earn their, their retirement, not just give them a paycheck and send them back out onto the streets to a life of aimlessness. Let them have a purpose. So we put the bill in. We feel very strong about it that that the young men and women who've been injured, they're the ones that we should be paying the most attention to. They're the ones that we should be giving the most opportunity for. And so this bill accomplishes just that. I've talked to Secretary of the Air Force, Secretary Heather Wilson. She and I are good friends. She's from New Mexico, was a congressman from Albuquerque while I served from the southern part of the state. So she's excited about it. The entire Air Force is signed on to it. They need the pilots. This offers them a win to get the, the pilots for the RPAs, but it also gives people the, life, the right to live productive lives once they've been injured in combat. You know, it's interesting that you bring up the need for pilots, and that seems to be, uh, across all branches of the service, need for a lot of very skilled people. I was talking just a few days ago uh, on Thanksgiving, I believe, actually, to a friend of mine who's a Blackhawk pilot who said, you know, he doesn't know if they might have to do some sort of stop loss because the pilots are just exiting from his units. They're being offered huge uh, bonuses to stay in and rejecting them, essentially, just saying, like, no, I'm going to go out into the civilian workforce. Uh, what do you think is behind that? That, and how do you think we can address it? I believe that this uh, Wounded Warriors Right to Serve Act could certainly do something to address the issue with drones. But when it comes to, you know, needing some of those highly skilled people as a pilot yourself, looking at pilots specifically and the glut of pilots in the Air Force, the Navy, the Army, the Marine Corps, overall in the branches, what do you think's behind it and what can we do about it? Well, that I'm working with the Secretary of the Air Force also. We've done a pretty deep study, again, uh, 
we need pilots in New Mexico for the F-16s. And so we've done a pretty deep study working with the millennial generation who is in pilot training. Uh, I think we're going to have to go in and, and do sort of a value reintroduction to the younger generation. It's not their fault, but they're not learning the ideas of duty, commitment. Uh, they And so what we're finding is that in pilot training, enough of the young people get into the pilot training program but then the first sign of difficulty, they will they will take themselves out of the program. And when we talk to multiple numbers of uh, millennials, the the thought comes through very clearly that that if they quit, then that's them in control, and it's not an evaluation of their capabilities. They mm. just decided not to do it. If they hit difficulties and are kicked out of the program, that's a sign of failure. So it's just this kind of lack of grit right at that decision point where things begin to get a little bit turbulent. And, and believe me, when you're learning to fly and especially learning to fly high-performance aircraft, uh, there are going to be times when you doubt your entire capabilities. So I think that we need to have a special program that, that identifies these young people who want to fly. But then we go in and teach them the grit, the tenacity of staying tough when things get tough. I believe that's kind of the point of intersection. Uh, we also have visited with the Air Force because I believe that, that this millennial generation is going to need more than just the, just the idea that you're part of the military, you have to follow orders. They actually need much deeper compelling than just follow orders. They will do it. They've got a great heart to serve. I think that they're going to change the world, but they also need this, this, uh, a deeper understanding of what it is they're doing and why. My generation, we were just given the one order. Your duty is to fly and to fight, and don't forget it. And and that was enough. This generation is going to take more. And so I think that the military is going to have to adapt to the generations that they're getting right now. doesn't mean that the military gets softer. It means that we have to have a way to reach this younger generation with the values they're finishing high school and college with and compel them the tenacity, that grit. Those are fantastic things to have in your in your toolkit of your personal life, and uh, let's teach them that. Going back to the uh, Protecting Wounded Warriors' Right to Serve Act, just to clarify, because some people might be thinking, oh, is this an act trying to force wounded warriors to stay in military service? This would be up to them, right? It's if they want to continue to serve that it would allow them to, to pilot these remotely piloted aircraft, correct? Absolutely. No, this is totally voluntary at this point. Some uh, some of our wounded warriors, uh, I worked with one who was a triple amputee coming out of, uh, he was from New Mexico, coming out of Afghanistan, and he wanted to get out of the military and pursue other alternatives. Well, that's fine, but just don't put them out without any regard to them. Don't just kick them out. Give them the opportunity to serve. Give them the option to, to keep serving or to get out and go on their own. Uh, that, I think, is, is a win-win for everyone. Because a lot of these wounded warriors, they have proved their heroism. They just want the ability to continue to serve in some way. And this is, is a definite way they could continue to serve. would keep them here in the States, uh, give them uh, the ability to have a stable life, yet while living a productive life. 
We're speaking with Congressman Steve Pierce, representing the 2nd District of New Mexico, Air Force veteran himself, and has uh, numerous items that he's introducing to uh, affect the veteran and military communities. The last of which that I want to talk about is the Veterans Life Insurance Bill, specifically the Disabled Veterans Life Insurance Act of 2017, which you introduced uh, about a month ago. And it's it's uh, to provide needed improvements, what you say, to the Service Disabled Veterans Life Insurance Program. So what are the problems that that program faces and how would this bill address them well when you're disabled you have a very difficult time getting uh getting life insurance so and and also the life insurance that you do get has not been updated since the 40s so you the annuity and mortality tables are way out of date so what you actually get for what you're paying for is not hardly worth it but also the amount is ten thousand bucks that back in the 1940s was a huge amount, but uh, it doesn't go anywhere today. Just the cost of burial has escalated up into the $8,000 range that barely covers uh, for your burial. So our bill simply raises the cap from 10000 to 95000 it, it changes the, uh, the mortality tables so that they're more reflective of, of the lifespan of today. And uh, it will control the premiums that the veterans have to pay by by these changes. Also, we uh, say let's not let this situation develop again, even if we pass the bill this time. Uh, let's not let inflation kind of eat away at our value. So we have uh, have an inflation adjustment every year, and I think that that's going to keep the program updated on its own then. When you look at these recent bills that you've introduced, the one aimed at uh, prohibiting back, ta- back pay for people like Bo Bergdahl and uh, other deserters, the Protecting Wounded Warriors Right to Serve Act, the uh, Veterans Life Insurance Bill changes, what do you think is the likelihood that these will get approved and get through? I mean, we've seemed to have seen a lot of bipartisan cooperation or, well, more bipartisan cooperation on veterans issues than anywhere else. But when you look at these three bills, I mean, what are your hopes as far as the likelihood of them getting through? Well, several years ago, we had a different version of the Wounded Warrior. This one is specifically towards the RPAs, and then it ends up generally the DOD fought the bill and actually killed it, but then they implemented pieces of it in, in by regulation. So we essentially won that fight. I think we're going to win this fight because the, the military desperately wants to, to try to find out how to give more meaning to the, to the wounded warriors themselves. Uh, as far as the life insurance, I feel very certain that that's going to pass. The Bergdahl thing, I think, is going to ride a wave. I think there's going to be a tidal wave of opposition to Bergdahl getting 300000 in back pay while he was a deserter. So I believe that that one will be carried by the people of the country into, into passing. Now, whether the Senate will get that passed, I don't know, because one senator can block everything on the Senate floor. I, I know where I, can, where I will get opposition over there. But I believe that we'll get all three out of the House. Finally, the choice bill was one I introduced back about 2003, just saying that if you're more than a, more than 40 miles away from a VA clinic, you ought to be able to go and and see your local providers that are not VA oriented. That bill sat and gathered dust for about eight years. Mm. Finally, when the the nation got angry at the way our veterans were being treated, they saw them dying on these waiting lists. 
That bill got dusted off. The name got changed on it to the chairman of the VA committee. He's a friend of mine. Told me he's going to take my bill and make it his. That bill passed in 90 days because of the outrage of the country at the way the veterans are being treated at the VA clinics. That bill is in, in law today, and uh, and so I believe that all three of these are going to get that same sort of a, a public uh, pressure to pass them. So we feel good about it. Congressman, we talk to the VSOs uh, each day of the week. We have a different VSO come on the program and talk to us about veterans' issues. And one recurring theme uh, that, that they seem to be concerned about is related to that Choice Act that you just mentioned and what they see as a push for more privatization of the VA. Do you believe that such a thing is taking place? And uh, either way, where do you stand on adding more private sector services to the care provided to veterans? Well, the... VA hospital system was built when there were no hospitals except in the major cities. Now then, even the smallest little towns in New Mexico have some sort of a clinic. They have some sort of a hospital. For us in New Mexico, we have to drive five hours one way from certain corners of the state to get VA care. It just doesn't make sense to pay people $250 in gas money to travel when they could see a local doctor just for the gas money. So for us in in the big, expansive western states with low populations. Uh, The choice program makes all the sense in the world. Uh, So I think that we've got to continue to ask questions about a VA system that is becoming less effective and less efficient every day. Look at how we can spend the money more wisely instead of paying for gas and motels for veterans to go and go to these big, expensive clinics uh, or big, expensive hospitals, I think is one that makes sense. But then you have to actually look at the, the total inefficiency of the, the VA itself. Uh, this one hospital they were trying to build in Denver was supposed to cost $300 million, ended up going to $600 million, then $800 million, then $900 million, then $1.1 billion. Uh, I think that the VA, the, the VA committee in the House and, and maybe even the Speaker of the House finally pulled the plug at about $1.3 billion dollars. When, a, when an agency sets out to build a $300 million program and it costs $1.3 billion and they still don't have it finished, there is something desperately wrong with the program. Uh, I, as one, am saying that we'd rather have the treatment for veterans rather than feeding a bureaucracy. So let's, let's find the best for our veterans and let's make that happen. Well, we've been speaking with Congressman Steve Pierce, representing the 2nd District of New Mexico, about three pieces of legislation that he's introduced, including the Protected Wounded Warriors' Right to Serve Act, which would allow wounded warriors to continue serving as the pilots of remotely piloted aircraft. Also, the Prohibit Back Pay for Bergdahl Bill, which is aimed at specifically Bo Bergdahl, but deserters in general, and keeping them from being eligible for military back pay. And a Veterans Life Insurance Bill related to the Disabled Veterans Life Insurance Act of 2017, which is to provide needed improvements to the Service Disabled Veterans Life Insurance Program. Well, Congressman, we want to thank you so much for your time today. And of course, from one veteran to another, thank you so much for your service in the uh, the world's greatest Air Force. Thank you for your service and appreciate this program that you have and uh, keeping veterans in the light of the day uh, for the entire country. So thanks. Keep up your great work. And there you have it. Congressman Steve Pierce of New Mexico's 2nd District decorated Air Force veteran. We're talking distinguished flying cross, two air medals, hundreds 
of combat missions over Vietnam during his time in the world's finest Air Force. We want to thank the congressman for joining us, as well as Sarah Maples of the VFW. And again, for more information on these and other items, you want to visit ConnectingVets.com and follow us on social media where we are at Connecting Vets. Have a great weekend. See you Monday. All-star closer, Kenley Jansen, we have a question. What's the best podcast of all time? Baseball isn't boring, baby. I'm Rob Bradford, and every single day I'm sitting down with the biggest names to show you this great game is the greatest game. It's my podcast. It's my passion. It's a cause I started more than two years ago and is now the most prolific national daily baseball pod. There is another fact, so jump aboard the B.I.B. Express. Follow and listen to Baseball Isn't Boring, presented by Wasabi Hot Cloud Storage on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.